Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic adult and child psychiatrist. This is part two of two podcasts on food families that can contribute to brain-related symptoms. In the last podcast, I discussed histamine, oxalates, salicylates, and lectins, all of which can contribute to inflammation in the body and secondarily in the brain. Today, I'll be talking about FODMAPs, high-sulfur foods, high-copper foods, high-folate foods, and foods with glutamate. My goal with these podcasts is to introduce general concepts with the hope that if you are dealing with food-related issues, this may help you identify which families could be causing them. I also hope to make clear how, for some of us, certain foods can contribute to things like brain fog, fatigue, anxiety, depression, and insomnia, though usually these will be in combination with physical symptoms, often involving the gastrointestinal tract, the skin, the sinuses, or the joints. My goal is not to take anyone down a path of food avoidance, but rather to an understanding and even hope that many of these intolerances can be moved past. It is very common for people to start to limit an entire family, only to then start eating large amounts of another family, which could then become problematic. As much diversity of food that we can feed our microbiome, the better. As with all my podcasts, this is for educational purposes and not treatment. So you do want to work with a knowledgeable practitioner if you have these issues, and again, You don't want to just start avoiding whole families of food. Because these food families overlap in a number of ways, from foods to symptoms, I want to review from the last podcast, high histamine foods are high in histamine mostly because of microbes breaking down food and releasing histamine. Think aged food, leftovers, and anything that is a product of fermentation. High oxalate foods involve oxalates, which are molecules that can form crystals. These crystals can become toxic to the body and cause tissue damage and inflammation. High salicylate foods. Salicylates are a chemical in food and can be very beneficial. However, for some, it can cause an immune response. And foods that are high in lectins, another group I talked about, uh, lectins relate to a protein that is on seeds. So in the broader picture, seeds include grains, nuts from trees, beans from legumes, and seeds from various vegetables and fruit. For most people who are having an intolerance to one of these food families, These issues can be addressed by getting to the deeper root cause, which I talked about in the previous podcast. In today's podcast, I'll talk about FODMAPs. So these relate to foods with particular carbohydrates that are fermentable by microbes in the gastrointestinal tract. An imbalance of gut microbes in the small intestine can create problems by way of fermentation of these foods. I'll also talk about sulfur, which is the third most abundant mineral in the body. And for reasons I'll discuss, some people are dealing with too much sulfur and getting more in their food can be problematic. I'll also talk about two food families that relate to neurotransmitter functioning. 
namely foods that are high in copper and foods that are high in folate. Lastly, I'll talk about glutamate, which is in certain foods and is also a neurotransmitter in the body that excites the nerves and regulates the functioning of other neurotransmitters. So neurotransmitters are chemicals that help our nerve cells communicate with one another. So too much glutamate for some people can cause an array of brain symptoms. So starting with FODMAPs, FODMAPs That is an acronym for different names of carbohydrates in some foods that are fermentable by gut bacteria and produce gas. If this is happening in the small intestine instead of the large intestine, this gas in the small intestine can cause bloating and abdominal pain, and for some people, diarrhea and constipation. For many people struggling with this, they may have a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS and they could be reacting to FODMAP foods. FODMAPs can, for some, cause SIBO, or small intestine bacterial overgrowth. They can also, for some people, cause inflammation in the gut. So inflammation in the gut can trigger mast cells, which are part of the inflammatory response, which can trigger inflammatory cells in the brain, thereby causing brain symptoms. FODMAPs, for some, can contribute to leaky gut, which is when there is permeability of the lining of the gastrointestinal tract, thereby allowing food particles to get through, which could cause autoimmune symptoms. Bloating that can be caused by FODMAPs for some individuals can also impact the valve between the large and small intestines, allowing microbes from the large intestine to get into the small intestine and then worsen this microbial imbalance. So I'm going to run through the acronym. I'm not going to list all foods, but just want to give you an idea of what general types of food we're talking about here. F is for fermentable. O is for oligosaccharides. So these are in onion, garlic, wheat, rye, beans, and certain sweeteners. D is for disaccharides, which are in white or brown sugar, milk, cheese, and certain other dairy products. Monosaccharides, which are in honey, apples, and high fructose corn syrup. A is for and, and P is for polyols, which are sugar alcohols found in artificial sweeteners such as xylitol, erythritol, pitted fruit, even cauliflower, and pumpkin. We can have problems with all of these groups, or we could just be having difficulties with one or two categories. The treatment involves cutting back on these foods or lowering the quantity for somewhere between two to six weeks, depending on someone's treatment, and not for the long term, as we need many of these foods, which are high in fiber and fermentable. We need these for the microbiome. When we eat these foods, our gut makes what are called short-chain fatty acids, which are particularly important for brain health and for decreasing inflammation. One of these is called butyrate. So while someone's on a low FODMAP diet, it can be helpful to be taking a supplement that is replenishing the butyrate. When reintroducing foods, it's recommended that one do one food at a time and one group at a time. 
The other aspect of treatment, obviously, is to address the imbalance of microbes. And there's a range of how this can be evaluated and how this can be treated. There is testing for small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is a breath test that measures two of the gases that can be produced by uh, microbes when someone has this imbalance. Next, I'll talk about sulfur, which is the third most abundant mineral in the body. Our source of sulfur is primarily dietary and is in the healthiest of foods. It is recommended that we eat a lot of these broccoli, cauliflower, garlic, onions. For some, sulfur can build up in the body and cause symptoms. With this, people can become sensitive to sulfur-rich foods and then develop symptoms when they're eating these foods. Sulfur is part of two of the building blocks of protein in our body. It's important for our muscles, our connective tissue, and it is important for detoxification. It is an antioxidant necessary also for immune function, hormones, and neurotransmitter metabolism. It is found in animal products, so any meat, dairy, or eggs, cruciferous vegetables, so broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, Brussels sprouts, dried fruit, garlic and onions, grains and beans, coconut oil, tea, coffee, alcohol, and well water. Supplements, there are quite a few. Um, Just to name a couple would be ALA and glucosamine. One could be reacting to sulfites, which is a preservative, and this is made from sulfur and oxygen. So why might someone have problems with sulfur? We do have genes that are involved in our sulfur metabolism, including CBS and SUOX. Dysbiosis, or the imbalance of microbes, be it bacteria or fungi, can be contributing to sulfur-related issues, and this could be from antibiotics, poor diet, stress, more often a combination of those. And environmental toxicity, specifically glyphosate, which is used in herbicides, and thus if someone's eating a lot of non-organic food, could be developing glyphosate toxicity which appears to be a factor in intolerance to sulfur in foods. What are the symptoms of sulfur intolerance? Physical symptoms could, again, be bloating and abdominal pain, irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, or what we call SIBO. Skin conditions could be hives itching. One might have asthma or allergies, stiff or swollen joints, swelling or gaining a lot of water weight. Brain symptoms can be fatigue and brain fog. Again, these aren't necessarily specific, but nonetheless can affect both the body and the brain. Treatment involves lowering sulfur in the diet, doing a low sulfur dietary trial, which can be an elimination for one week and then gradually reintroducing one food at a time. Particular supplements can also be helpful in clearing sulfates. And of course, as with all the other food-related issues I've discussed, treatment involves addressing the underlying microbial imbalances in the gastrointestinal tract and addressing toxicity if that's also contributing to those imbalances. Mm-hmm. 
These next two food families I'll discuss briefly because I have previous podcasts that relate to copper overload and another on undermethylation, which relates to high folate. These are not necessarily immune triggers in the way the other groups that I discussed can be. However, for some, they can cause brain symptoms by the way these nutrients can impact neurotransmitter functioning. So if we have too much copper or too much folate, we can have problems. Copper is an essential trace element in our body and serves many functions. One of those functions is as a cofactor, meaning it's a helper to an enzyme. In this case, an enzyme that turns dopamine, which is what we need for attention and concentration, into norepinephrine. And this is somewhat like adrenaline, if you think about if you were high in adrenaline, what that can feel like. If we have too much copper, we can become low in dopamine and high in norepinephrine. And this can look like poor attention along with anxiety or hyperactivity or even agitation or rage. Someone could have high copper for genetic reasons. We all have what are called metallothionine proteins in our body, and they regulate copper. And if we have a genetic weakness involved with this protein, they may not be working up to full speed. So if we are low in zinc, which is needed to produce these metallothionine proteins, then we may have a weakness there. Also, we could have high toxicity that could be overwhelming these proteins as they're also addressing other forms of toxicity in our body. And so either these conditions could cause copper to go up. More often, it appears that there's a combination of these factors, genetic, low zinc, and toxicity. However, added estrogen in the form of birth control or hormone replacement can cause copper to go up in some individuals with a genetic vulnerability. If we are dealing with high copper, we don't want to be adding more copper in the form of food or water sources. Copper is in water because it's not considered a toxin. Uh, Well water is especially high. However, we can also get high levels of copper from chocolate, carob, and shellfish, and there are certain multivitamins that will have copper in them. All of those could be problematic for someone who is already in a high copper state. Organ meat, certain beans, nuts, avocado, and salmon are high, though not as high as chocolate, carob, and shellfish. So I wouldn't have people necessarily strictly avoid these. However, they wouldn't want to be eating a lot of these on a daily basis. Treatment here is to, again, address the underlying root cause. If someone does have high copper, while I recommend that they avoid chocolate and shellfish and carob, and I recommend that they avoid the others on a frequent basis, how strict these recommendations are will depend on how high their copper is, how difficult it is to bring it down. And there's not a way, somebody inquired on Facebook, if there was a way to lower the content, for example, of copper in foods through cooking, and there's not. Folate is a B vitamin in our body. Some individuals can have what we call a methylfolate imbalance. If they are what we call undermethylated, they have too much folate 
and not enough methyl. We get methyl from protein and folate from a lot of leafy green vegetables and beans and other foods as well. If someone is what we call under-methylated, and that might be someone who's perfectionistic, detail-oriented, very left-brain, strong-willed, driven, they may have allergies or high histamine states, and if they appear to have low serotonin symptoms, so this could be depression, anxiety, or obsessive-compulsive tendencies, then more folate could further lower serotonin activity, and make their brain symptoms worse. We address undermethylation that causes these symptoms using targeted nutrients, but we also recommend avoiding foods enriched with folic acid, so certain breads and cereals are enriched, and any form of folate in multivitamins, and we recommend a diet that has greater emphasis on protein over leafy green foods. Again, I wouldn't recommend someone strictly avoid leafy green foods, but they don't want that to be an abundance on their diet. The opposite would be overmethylation, and that's where someone is actually low in folate, and they could benefit from a plant-based diet, and because they're overmethylated, they don't tend to need as much protein, and in fact, that could worsen their symptoms if they're getting too much protein. Lastly, I'll discuss glutamate, which is an amino acid that is the most abundant neurotransmitter in the brain. It is considered excitatory, and that would be relative to GABA, which is inhibitory. So these kind of oppose one another. And inhibitory would be things that would sort of calm us down, and excitatory would be things that would activate our nervous system. Glutamate also regulates receptors for other neurotransmitters. It's involved with serotonin activity, dopamine activity, norepinephrine activity, and acetylcholine. But glutamate can also be destructive when in excess outside of brain cells. So though the brain largely keeps this extracellular glutamate low, There are certain situations in which it could be high. In these cases, we wouldn't want to also be getting high amounts of glutamate through our diet. These types of situations could be toxins, basically acting as an insult to the brain. So this could be metal toxins, glyphosate, which I mentioned. EMF is also considered a toxicant to the brain. Physical trauma, seizures, autoimmune conditions that are impacting the brain. In these cases, inflammatory cells in the brain called microglial cells will try to reduce extracellular glutamate, thereby causing inflammation and damage to the nerve cells. So while we want these cells to be in repair mode, we don't want them to be in destructive mode. And so one way to do that is to lower glutamate in the diet. Symptoms, if someone's reacting to a high glutamate state and with that added glutamate in their diet, we might see brain fog, feelings of high stress, and there can be the potential for a whole range of conditions that could be impacted. So seizures, autism, ADHD, sensory processing disorder, learning disabilities, insomnia, bedwetting, OCD, bipolar disorder, 
and anxiety disorder. Processed foods generally contain high levels of free glutamate. Other foods would be gluten-containing foods, dairy-containing foods, monosodium glutamate, so MSG, which is added in a lot of restaurant foods, but also an additive in many processed foods, artificial and natural flavors, soy sauce, coconut aminos, and Bragg's aminos, which are replacements for soy sauce that many people use, bouillon, citric acid, or citrate, anything that contains the word glutamate, anything with the words hydrolyzed, autolyzed, any protein isolate, whey, and protein powders. Again, there's more, but I'm just trying to hit on the highlights. Treatment, again, is to address underlying causes. And again, because these are all complex topics, I'll be providing resources if you want to dig deeper. I do hope, despite these being complex topics, that I've given you an understanding of generally how food families can impact our brain health. And I hope that I've given you hope and encouragement to seek the underlying root causes and not go down a path of endless avoidance. If you know someone you think could benefit, please consider sharing. And if generally you'd like to help me get this information about root causes to brain-related symptoms out into the world, please consider sharing, liking, or commenting. Or let me know on one of the social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram, what topics you'd like me to address. Until the next podcast, I'll look forward to connecting with you. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.